0: Thanks for checking out this Church in the City podcast. For more information, please visit www.churchinthecity.us. I'm glad you guys are here today. I'm very excited to be sharing this morning. Um, As Steve mentioned, we're going to be concluding the series on the book of Ruth. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Ruth chapter 4, and we will uh, begin from there. I told Steve and James this past week that uh, I was ready to make up for their teaching the past four weeks and correct whatever they, you know, missed and things like that. So I hope you guys are ready for that too. No, I'm totally joking. Actually, they, they insisted to me, no, Nate, we've set the ball in the air and it's ready for you to spike it. So that's actually how I feel and I'm thankful for them doing that. And I hope that's how you guys feel and I hope you're ready to uh, get to the end of this book and, and get to the conclusion. How many of you guys like to be in suspense? You do? Have you guys felt any suspense in this series? How many of you guys uh, watched a, a movie last night, but only 80% of the movie? Did anybody do that? Really? Okay, I'm not going to ask you why, but uh, you're ruining my analogy. So <laughs> so usually, usually you don't watch 80% of the movie, because what usually happens in the last 20% of the movie the conclusion, right? Uh, things work out or they don't work out or whatever, but it's the conclusion. That's what we're coming into today. We've spent four weeks of, of going through this story of Ruth, and today is the conclusion. So I hope you are unlike Kate and ready to finish <laughs> this final thing. So um, just real quickly, I want to do a brief uh, catch-up, a little uh, st- show you what the story has looked like so far. Behind me, you're going to see a little plot line diagram. I find these kinds of things helpful. I don't know if you do. I'm going to be quick with it, but I want to show you the rise and fall of the plot in Ruth that you guys maybe have noticed. So it began with this uh, explanation of Elimelech and his family leaving Bethlehem because of a famine, right? So things are starting to look down, right? The next thing that happened, there's a complication. Naomi's husband and two sons die. So Elimelech dies, two sons die, so there's three widows now with no security. Naomi is too old to remarry and to have more kids, and Ruth decides to stay with her. But the future is doubtful. Uh, then we saw in, in the beginning of chapter 2, there's, there's a, a potential solution. There's this man, Boaz, who's a relative of Elimelech. He enters the story and he's seen as a potential redeemer. So there's some hope, Right? This, the plot begins to rise. And then last week we saw another complication. We see that Boaz, though he desires to redeem, he's not the first in line to claim the property of Elimelech and with it, Ruth. And I'm going to explain a little bit more later about some of that cultural custom because we're going to run into a couple of cultural customs today that are important to understand. So I hope that's helpful. And I want you guys to remember what James said in week one about our story muscle We're going to flex that again today, and I hope that that plot line helps us to uh, see where we're at in the story. Today we're going to see that God accomplishes his purposes in partnership with man despite any obstacle. So let's take a look. What are some of the obstacles that we've seen so far in this story? Think about it with me. I have a list here. Firstly, famine, (laughs) then death, (laughs) then ethnic tension between, oh, she's a Moabitess and he's a Jew, then old age, Naomi's too old to get remarried, barrenness, she's too old to have kids now, poverty, they don't have enough to survive, social customs, as we're going to see today, there's obstacle of social custom. And also the obstacle of human will, this other character who is the next, he has the right of redemption, and we're going to see how that outworks. There's a whole list of obstacles (laughs) in this story, and we've seen them throughout. And right now we're facing one of the final obstacles in the story, this thing of social custom and human will. But we're going to see that God accomplishes his purposes in partnership with man, despite any and all of these obstacles. So Ruth chapter 4, let's get your uh, imaginations ready, ready to flex your story muscle, and I'll begin reading Ruth chapter 4, verse 1. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. Boaz has a plan. And behold, the Redeemer, of whom Boaz had spoken, came by. Remember in chapter 3, there's this other character. Boaz says, I'm not the next in line. To redeem, it's not my right, but I want it to be. So he's, he has a plan to go and talk to this guy, right? This unnamed uh, character. So he goes and waits for him at the gate. The guy comes by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend. Sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. And he, the other man, said, I will redeem it. So this guy wants to redeem the land. I'm going to explain a little bit more about that, that custom of redemption in a little bit. So hang in there. But, but let's just remember what just happened. He seeks out this guy. He, he convenes a meeting with the elders of the city. The gate of the city is where legal transactions would happen. So he's following appropriate customs of the day to deal with this issue. And so that's what he's doing. And this is actually the first first mention of this land that belonged to Elimelech. Boaz has known about it, and he's now playing his cards in a sense. He's bringing up this thing to the guy, and and it's kind of interesting. If you think about the story so far, this kind of raises a couple questions. Like, what's this land that was there all along? Wasn't Naomi poor and destitute, and didn't didn't Ruth have to glean in somebody else's field? What's this field that they owned? Um, We don't know exactly the story behind this, but perhaps this field was abandoned when the famine happened, right? They definitely abandoned it at some point when they were gone. And then they've returned to it. Perhaps it had been untouched, uncultivated, and it was not fruitful. Um, And so that's likely the situation. One commentator says this, Perhaps now, in the extremity of her poverty, Naomi is forced to sell the land, land which she could then seek to persuade a redeemer for her. So it's kind of like this last stitch effort, in a sense. There's this land that Elimelech owned and that she can sell with the possibility of a redeemer being interested. That's what's kind of going on here. Um, I'm going to tell you about this custom. This was a custom that was meant to keep the inheritance in the family. Okay? This was a protective thing. And, and so the first opportunity to redeem the land, went to the nearest relative of the guy who died. And this was to protect the family name and the family inheritance. Um, there's not anything quite like this in our context today. So we need to be a little honest with ourselves about our distance from this, this concept. Um, and so let's just be honest about that. I'm going to explain a little bit more about this, this thing. So the word used is called goel, G-O-E-L. And this word means protector. It means uh, it's a near kinsman whose duty, in circun- certain circumstances, to act as a redeemer in situations of family need. Okay, so this is an opportunity for someone to step in and help out, and the first right for that goes to the family. So, if there's this this cultural uh, understanding of this concept, you can understand why Naomi and Ruth are longing for this goal to arrive to, to, and to step up. All they need is just one goal, right? They're longing for a goal. If you're anything like me, you felt that way on Tuesday. All I need is a goal. <laughs> so, it's not to be confused with G-O-A-L. I'm sorry, G-O-E-L. That still hurts right there. So... Anyways, this is the kinsman-redeemer concept. Probably many of you have heard of that before. And it was a practice that was established for the protection of the family. Like I said, there's several ways it was outworked. Sometimes it was buying back land. Sometimes it was buying back a person who had to sell themselves into slavery or servitude because they were impoverished. Uh, It also dealt with avenging blood and sometimes it was a, it was, uh, someone would function as a trustee in restitution payments for wrongs that had been done. So there's many functions of this. We're going to see this function of buying back the land today. So it's kinsman redeemer, right? This is not to be confused with klinsman redeemer, which is something else entirely. <laughs> Sorry, that's the last soccer analogy that I will use today. I'll give you guys one guess at who made that graphic, and it was not me. Anybody? James. (laughs) Credit to James. Okay. He copyrighted it, I think, so I owe him money now. Okay, so this kinsman redeemer, it means to redeem or to reclaim as one's own, so that this property, this inheritance, and the family name would not be lost, but it would be reclaimed. Um, as Steve mentioned last week, and, and as we mentioned throughout this series, um, the series, the time period that this is in, is the, it was said the days of the judges. And it was a tumultuous time. There was a lot of independence and self-reliance and, and rebellion and things like that going on during this time. And this is actually a cultural institution of family and to get solidarity. It's, it's different than the time that was going on. And so there is a strong sense of family solidarity among the people of Yahweh. The members of the family had a duty to care for and to protect each other. This right of redemption protected the family inheritance in name. This was their security net, their livelihood. Safety was found in family and community. They didn't have the insurance that we have today. Most, they didn't have the nest egg sitting in the bank. They didn't have they couldn't sing the little song Like a Good Neighbor, State Farm is there. And no one would pop up <laughs> in this day. They didn't have that, okay? And think about this also what's happening here. It's 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 the closest analogy I can think of today is like paying off the mortgage on your parents farm or something. Like you don't it's like you lose that thing that was a part of your family, and it was a part of the livelihood as well. And, and before it's clo- foreclosed or something like that, it's kind of like paying off the mortgage. Anyways, enough of that concept. Is everyone with that, that goel? So they're longing for that. We're going to see this guy, this other guy is wanting to do this. He wants to redeem the land. And if he does, if he chooses to, Boaz can't do a thing about it. Let's see what Boaz does next. Verse 5. Then Boaz said... The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. So Boaz kind of he's got a little strategy with his the way he reveals the information first he reveals about the land and then he says oh yeah there's also this with it as well ruth there's a widow who's who's a part of elimelech's family and and it, this is included in the package right so this it could have just been a land thing but this situation was not just a land thing there was a widow involved or several widows as we saw and and there's this thing so this is another cultural custom it's called lever l e v i r this refers to an ancient marriage institution in which an in-law is involved. If a man dies without children, the name of the dead man is perpetuated through the widow's marriage with another man. Could be the man's brother. Uh, And through her having children for the dead man. Interesting, right? It's very different to our culture. Let's be honest about that. But this is something that was practiced then for the protection and extension of the family name. Okay, so... If you were to going to redeem this land and this person, you were also deciding to carry on someone else's name through having children. Okay? Very interesting, right? This is—it it, kind of seems a little bit like, oh, you can just do this and you can get some land and get a wife, and it's like this great windfall, right? It's a costly thing. It is, this requires self-sacrifice. Any of you guys who have a family, have a wife, have, you know there's sacrifice involved. Yes, it's a great benefit. Yes, it's an amazing thing. But there is cost. This other man, for whatever reason, was not willing to, to step up and pay the cost. He wasn't wanting to take, make that thing of self sacrifice. We don't know more about why he wouldn't re- redeem, but we have to assume that the cost was too great for him. One commentator says it like this To act as a goel in these circumstances would be very costly. involved personal sacrifice. The goel would have to give part of his own inheritance, the cost for the land, for the sake of others, Elimelech's family name, and the inheritance of Elimelech's property. This would would have to require an act of love and sacrifice, which this kinsman was not in the position to offer. So this is a serious thing, you know, that, that he's taking on. And this man says, I cannot redeem it. Take the right of redemption, he says to Boaz. So Boaz is doing his proper duty, right, legally and according to cultural custom to make way for him to re- redeem it, right? And, and this is how it is working out. Let's read verse 7. Now this is the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. Like I said, he went to the city gate, the place for legal activity, and he's following the correct customs of the day. And now there's this. There's Boaz is going to redeem it. Um, the sandal thing's kind of interesting, right? Um, I don't, I don't know anything more about it or why, but the verse explains right here that it was a custom in those days. And uh, you know, th- think about it. In that day, like giving your sandal someone was probably a big deal. You probably didn't have a lot of shoes, and uh, and and it was like. It was important to you, obviously. So, and I also think it's interesting. Maybe there's like shows your footprint on there. It's kind of like a little signature. I don't know. That's a, I'm just joking. But, um, so business guys, next time you're going to strike a deal, try this one out, you know? Say, say we've got a deal. Oh, hang on. We've got a deal. <laughs> okay, sorry. I wore sandals just for that. <laughs> You like that? You like that? All right. <laughs> so, just, let's just be honest about these cultural things. It's a little different, but this is how it worked. Verse 8. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, Buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and to Malon. Those were the, other, the two sons who had died. Also, Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malan, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. So the legal side has been taken care of, and Boaz now steps in. In verse 9, we see he becomes the kinsman redeemer on behalf of uh, all, that Elimelech, all that belonged to Elimelech by purchasing the land and, and also taking Ruth. In verse 10, we see that he fulfills the Leveret law by the, of the name continuation by taking Ruth to, as his wife. So he's fulfilling both of these customary things. He's following all the legal, uh, legal steps. And so Boaz understood the circumstances, the customs, and the great cost involved. And he took intentional effort to intervene on behalf of Ruth and Naomi and redeem them and their inheritance. He had compassion. He took on a problem that was not his own. And he paid a price in self-sacrificial love for the well-being of the vulnerable and with great love for his bride-to-be. Does that remind you of anyone else? (laughs) <laughs> just a little foreshadowing <laughs> so we see here that God accomplishes his purposes in partnership with man despite any obstacle Boaz has stepped in he has become the redeemer and he has fulfilled the Levirate uh, custom of, of, of continuing the name and the inheritance of Elimelech verse 11 then all the people This is another important scene of family and community going on here, like we talked about. There's the solidarity and family, and the people of the community who are witnesses to this transaction and to the wedding that is about to happen. They are witnesses and speaking their blessings. Right? This is this is speaking their blessings. Think of it like uh, wedding toasts, perhaps. You know, this wedding's about to happen, and they're speaking their blessing over them. Let's take a quick look at these things they say. So to Ruth, they said, May the Lord make you like Rachel and Leah. You guys remember Rachel and Leah? They were, they were uh, the mothers of Israel, if you will, of the, of the twelve sons, um, and who built up the house of Israel. This is about uh, legacy and fruitfulness. This is a blessing of fruitfulness over, over Ruth. To Boaz, they say, May you prosper in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. They're saying, May Boaz be enriched and his offspring. May he achieve much and be famous. That's kind of what they're saying. And then to the family, they say, May your house, may you as a couple and your family, be like the house of Perez. They're saying, may it be very numerous. May it be renowned. May it increase greatly. Um, when you, if you look up about Perez, it was a time of, of fruitfulness and, and his house increasing. They said he had many descendants. So these are, these are blessings. These are, they're speaking... Uh, words of affirmation and life over them. So, next time you guys are at a wedding and uh, you want to give a toast, you can always refer back to these verses here. May your house be like the house of Perez. And uh, people, I'm sure, will ask you what you mean by that. But um, So, those, those will make good wedding toasts. That's what's happening here. Okay, verse 13. You guys with me? Everyone doing all right? Okay, verse 13. This is about as concise as you can describe... The two biggest life changes, possible. (laughs) So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Wow, marriage and baby in one (laughs) verse—that is crazy. (laughs) So I I always tell people who are getting married or or having a kid, I'm like, those are the two biggest life changes possible, (laughs) and they're uh, they're right to it, you know. So. They, they get married. Uh, they're married. The gate is again where the, the transaction happened. They're in the presence of these witnesses. Uh, Boaz takes Ruth as his wife. The right has now become his. And he steps in and takes it and, and marries her. His love motivated her, motivated him to pursue this. <laughs> to pursue Ruth. And to, to, to get through those obstacles <laughs> and to pursue Ruth. And the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. And this is actually the last that we hear of Ruth in the book of Ruth, which is quite interesting. So it's kind of like the, the conclusion of, of that story in a sense, that the name of, of her father's family is now being continued through her and, and that God has given fruitfulness. Remember how bleak it looked before with Naomi being too old to remarry or to have kids and Ruth deciding to stay with Naomi. Naomi. There wasn't much hope for their family to be continued and their line to be, to be continued. And that is exactly what we're seeing now happening. So verse 14, the women say to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. May his name be renowned in Israel. He, speaking of the baby, shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They called him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. The word that Tommy shared earlier I found so interesting as soon as he started sharing. The thing about milk. (laughs) <laughs> and about nourishment and fruitfulness. And I thought immediately of these verses, that, that this is what is spoken over Naomi. He will be a nourisher of your old age, restorer of life. And then even the scene of, of Naomi taking the baby to nurse. I mean, I was like, that's awesome, <laughs> the, the word you shared earlier. Um, this is what is happening. There is a complete turnaround in our story When things looked bleak and there was all these obstacles in the way, we have now finally come where those obstacles have been overcome. uh, These people, Ruth and Boaz, have chosen to walk in faith and to partner with God. And those obstacles have been overcome. And now there is life in the family again. Isn't it interesting how the focus kind of returns to Naomi here? If you remember in chapter 1, the book started with some focus on Naomi and Elimelech. That's how it began. And that scene in verse 1 where she's saying, Don't call me Naomi, call me bitter, for the Lord has dealt harshly with me and judged me. You know, he's lost my husband, lost my sons, all this stuff. That was the scene of Naomi in chapter 1. Now the scene with Naomi where the book concludes in chapter 4 is a complete reversal. There is new life. There's the restoration of life. There's the nourishment in old age. The, the women and townspeople, it's interesting, right? They say the son has been born to Naomi. Isn't that—so isn't that, there's such a sense of family and solidarity and that this baby was a continuation of a Limelech's line, which was Naomi's husband. And so there's this corporate you know, family view here, and it's so rich in these verses— and so the focus coming back to Naomi is bringing us completely full circle in the, in the book. In this culture, the redemption affected the whole family. Boaz didn't just redeem Ruth as his wife. This isn't like them eloping and just taking off. But he's redeeming all that was Elimelech. It's this completely restorative, redemptive thing and carrying on his name. These verses are just oozing with that family solidarity. It's amazing that that's this is the this is the picture we're given. You know, sometimes it's interesting to think about why, are, why does the Bible you know contain stories like this? If God wanted us to see Him as a redeemer, perhaps He could just say, "I am a redeemer." <laughs> It'd be shorter to read and uh, simpler, perhaps. <laughs> But we're given these these stories that have such richness in them, right? And we're, we're, we're getting a picture of it. It reminds me of how the Bible describes Christ as the image of God. It's a picture of God. It's not just God saying what he is. I am love. But it's sending a very tangible, viewable picture for us to see of what he is like. Many commentators say that the book of Ruth establishes this concept of redemption in the Jewish mind. And that even in the New Testament, when Paul uses the word redemption or redeemed, it would trigger these these thoughts back towards this establishment of what that looks like. (laughs) And this is a rich story, and that is why we've been spending the time on it. And so I hope you guys are grasping that image of the cost— of redemption, all these obstacles that went on, and the effort that Boaz, that Ruth made, this great faith effort, and also that Boaz made to redeem. It wasn't just a a simple, easy thing. It took effort. It took cost. So think again about that contrast between chapter 1 and chapter 4. In chapter 1, the situation was destitution and hopelessness. There was no known future. They could not see it. For all, you know, for all intents and purposes, they had no reason to think that their family would continue in any way. Perhaps they would be widows the rest of their life. Perhaps they would starve and die. They were in poverty as well. So there was, there was no hope at that point. And now we're seeing restored life, hope, and a future. And in case that's not quite good enough, <laughs> the author gives us this bigger perspective of the book of Ruth in these final verses. Let's read verse 18 through 22. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Amminadab fathered Nation. Nation fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. I know our inclination when we see a genealogy is like, skip over it or find the funniest names in it and, you know, chuckle. But, but they're actually there for a reason. And this is, this, in this, the author is giving us the scope of this book. <laughs> he's, he's showing us, like, this is a little bigger than you thought it was, the deal that's going on here. This is not just an inspiring story, although it is a great and inspiring story of redemption. It's an important link in the line of David and ultimately to Christ. Can you imagine going from a bleak and hopeless situation <laughs> to this situation of life and nourishment, and maybe they didn't even know for full what was going to come. I don't know how long each of these people lived, and you know whether whether uh, Ruth saw Obed, you know, son Jesse come, and whether they were great grandparents when David was born. I don't know. Maybe they didn't even know the full legacy that they had, but there was a legacy attached to this story that is incredible. <laughs> it is incredible. The name Obed, it means servant and worshiper. Think about the legacy that is beginning with him. Servant and worshiper. What do we see in his grandson? A servant and a worshiper in David. Perhaps this is a turning of the tides in their family history. And, and God has now brought new life more abundantly than they could have ever thought or imagined. This is their legacy, the line of David, the line of Christ. God accomplishes his purposes in partnership with man despite any obstacle. Despite famine, death, ethnic tension, old age, barrenness, poverty, cultural customs, human will, despite all these obstacles, God accomplished his purpose. Partnering with Ruth and Boaz. Think about them. God worked through their self-sacrificial acts to to accomplish a greater good. Surely they were noble people for their faith and for their action, Ruth and Boaz. But it was God in partnering with them, um, uh, extending his kingdom line through Ruth. So just think about that for a moment. The fact that God partners with people. <laughs> it's a strange thing. It's an interesting thing. We, we could easily suggest, wouldn't it be easier if he decided to do it without us? <laughs> wouldn't it be simpler if he just made things happen or forced things to happen? But for whatever reason, he's chosen to partner with people. And this is one of many examples in the Bible of that. So think about this in your own life. How is God wanting to? You to partner with him? What are the ways that maybe you feel barrenness or hopelessness or situations that doesn't seem like anything's going to come from it? God can redeem that. God can redeem your situation. He can redeem your life and turn it for good. He can work good through even tragedy that He, he didn't cause to happen but he can, he can turn it for good and for his purposes. God is faithful. I feel like this whole morning we've been talking about that and singing about that. It's been great. God is faithful. You can trust him. He will, wi- he will work despite your situation, despite any obstacle. Partner With him. Walk in faith in the one who is faithful. In a moment, I'm going to invite Steve to come up and he's going to end us off with uh, a response. But I want to come back to that thought of of Boaz and that redeemer and that that self-sacrifice that he made. He took on a problem that was not his own. He didn't have to do this. He didn't have to step in. He didn't have to go through the cost. um, But he chose to because of his love, because of his compassion. He saw a situation of need. And he had compassion. And he stepped in to great cost to himself, but for the good of these people and for that love relationship. This is a beautiful picture of what Christ has done for us. Christ did the very same. He saw a situation, a problem that was not his own doing. Man fallen away, man rebelling against God. And, and God the Father and Christ, they were moved with compassion. God so loved the world that he sent his son. That compassion motivated action and sending something costly, a very costly response, his only son. This is the message of the Bible. This is the message of salvation that is woven through the whole Bible. It is woven through Ruth. And as we go, it's looking forward to Christ. And we now are able to look back on the cross and say, it is finished. Christ has done this. He has redeemed. He has stepped into a situation at at great cost and has made provision. This whole... Story is about the provision of God, despite any obstacle. And this is exactly what Christ did. And God says in the word, in the Bible, that he's done it for all people. That he wants all to be saved. And so I want to invite you today to trust in Jesus. To put your faith in him. If you have never put your faith in Jesus, I invite you to do so today. Today. He is a redeemer. He is turning things to good. He is uh, reaping—he's bearing fruit where he did not sow. He's bringing fruitfulness from barrenness. He's bringing nourishment and life from hopelessness. This is what God is all about. (laughs) Redemption. So I invite you to respond to this today. If there's anyone here who has not put their faith in Christ— I invite you to do that now, and I invite you to come and talk with me or one, one of the other leaders at the front afterwards. This is an important thing, but it's a, it's a beautiful and free thing. Christ has done it. He has made the way, and we can receive from it. Will you pray with me? Father God, we thank you for your great sacrifice I thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are all about redemption. You're all about new life where there was not life. And so, God, we just want to speak life today. We want to receive your life today in our lives. Where there is doubt, barrenness, uh, poverty, any obstacle, God. We want to come to you in faith today. Just as Ruth did in faith, coming to you. Just as Boaz did, trusting in you. We want to respond in that way today, God. So, God, we thank you. We thank you, God, that you accomplish your purposes in partnership with man despite any obstacle. And we praise you today. In Jesus' name, amen.
1: Thanks, Steve. Wasn't that outstanding? Um, I want us this morning to respond uh, in song. We were at uh, our pre-service prayer meeting downstairs, and Aaron uh, Foster recited the words of, Great is thy faithfulness. And uh, in the light of the series that we've been teaching, um, Out of Ruth, the main theme that we've been speaking about and the main theme that came through today is God's incredible faithfulness. God achieves His purposes in partnership with man, despite the obstacles that stand in our way, and uh, there is a response that we we need to have. God works in partnership. That's the point that made, that, that Nate was making. So I want to, before we uh, stand together and end uh, this sermon and this morning's meeting and our series, um, I want to ask you just for a moment to close your eyes, and I want you to reflect on or remember. Or think about or consider the promises of God spoken over your life. The things that you know that He has said to you that He wants to bless you with. And and that could be a myriad of things. But I want you just to bring those promises to the front of of your thoughts, bring them up into your heart. Consider those things. And as you close your eyes and just think on those things, I know every one of us here. We have not yet walked into those promises because there are various obstacles in our way. Because there are things that we need to uh, walk through. There are, there are things that are opposing the plans of God. Sometimes it's our own weakness. I was thinking today, um, you know, about every single person in the Bible called of God thought they were weak. Moses said, Lord, I can't speak. You know, Jeremiah said... I'm too young. You know, Abraham didn't believe God at first. Peter even said that, that he wasn't able to follow the plans of God. Every single person called of God fa- has to face their own weakness. But God calls us despite, despite that. Not only do we have to face our own weakness, but there's the, there's the opposition of the devil. The devil opposes the plans of God. But you see, here's where the partnership comes in with us and God. The Bible says in Hebrews that it is through faith and patience that we inherit the promise. And so our part with God is standing in faith for what He's spoken over our lives. Not faith in our ability to walk into those promises. Not faith in our strength to do the right thing. But faith as Nate taught today. Faith in the faithfulness of god the fact that god is faithful enables us to stand in faith and so as you consider those promises spoken over your lives and as you realize that there are there's opposition that you face i want to ask us all today to stand let's stand now and let's sing about the faithfulness of god because that's our partnership with god in walking into the inheritance